I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's episode is a talk given by Carl Abrahamson called The Magic of Dreams Made Real. This talk is from a paper included in his book, A Culture, The Hidden Forces That Drive Culture Forward, published by Inner Traditions. You can also check out Resonances from Scarlet Imprint. Carl Abrahamson has his own publishing company, Tripart Books, Films, and Editions. You can check out the books he's written, edited, and published at tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T.net, including Rendering Unconscious, the book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. You can also check out his films at Tripart Film and his Vimeo On Demand page, where all of his films are available to view. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. To support the podcast and my work with Carl, please visit our Patreon patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. This episode is also available to view at YouTube as are most Rendering Unconscious podcast episodes. Just visit Tripart Film at YouTube or search for Rendering Unconscious podcast. Welcome to the O'Culture Lecture Series with Carl Abrahamson. Hello, welcome to this lecture called The Magic of Dreams Made Real. In our contemporary culture, the dream sphere has been moved to a mystical and stigmatized corner a sphere which we usually try to understand by simplified interpretation models and a superstitious rationality. One of those interpretation models is the hierarchic one. This doesn't merely come from Freud, but from a much larger background and perspective. But if we stick with Freud's powerful legacy, we recognize the hierarchic structure, id, ego, superego, etc. It's a model we've grown accustomed to. And as with his dream theories, claiming that the subconscious lies beneath and occasionally stirs up things when we let our guards down, reminding us of wishes, desires, fears and frustrations. One central element in this model is that the rational mind runs the show when we're awake. But there's no escaping the fact that we sleep and thereby dream approximately one third of our lives. That's a lot of time and a lot of energy spent on something that is generally regarded as something passive and irrational. 
Strangely enough, this perspective seems predominant even within uh, contemporary psychology. At least that's how it's being taught today at American universities. The focus here seems to be on clinical experiments, neurology and neurochemistry. But that in itself contains the same fundamental dilemma as most of the natural sciences. The beauty of a flower cannot be understood by dissecting it over and over again and trying to find out which chemicals are involved. Quoting the American psychology professor Roger Knudson, a critical voice, quote, American psychology majors learn that dreams are meaningless byproducts of brain processes. This is taught by every textbook in introductory psychology used in our department over the past decade. End quote. Also, quote, imagination is mainly a source of error in memory and therefore is not to be trusted. End quote. Uh, Freud was a child of his times, and the authoritarian, hierarchic thinking was, in his case, based both on his own religious environment and an overall European culture of post-industrial rationalism. Of course, we can absolutely not say that Freud regarded dreams and their importance as insignificant, quite on the contrary. But he worked within a context where focus on order was essential. Otherwise, in the dualistic logic that reigned supreme at this time, everything would turn into chaos and inner and outer disturbances. Parallel to Freud's work were other manifestations of progress within the natural sciences, some of which unleashed enormous energies for good and bad. The atomic structure theory, with its protonic center and a varying amount of electrons in orbit, quickly generated metaphysical speculations concerning the similarities with the structure of the universe, etc. The atomic model of interpretation of both an inner and outer world is in many ways more usable in most contexts. It seems as though the hierarchic one fits best in processes that are rigid in their focus on pecking order, that is, ascribing something relative value. The higher is worth more than the lower, etc. That kind of value-related thinking doesn't really exist within the atomic model. We are going to stick with the atomic model here this evening. If we begin on an overall human level and look at the protonic center, we might as well call that core the individual. Around the individual, many important phenomena and energies spin around in orbit and make up the individual's makeup, so to speak. One model could be time and function based. One third consists of awake work, one third of awake social life, and one third of sleeping and dreaming. Another model could be the sleeping third, where the proton could still be seen as the individual and the electrons could be 
physical repose and different types of dreaming or even different specific dreams. On a very basic level, our existence is all about reproduction and pushing life onwards within our own species. That could be seen to be quite a dull and hopeless existence, but the human being as an advanced cultural phenomenon can at least find comfort in personal qualities and traits as the foundation for individual harmony. We apparently nurture a need to feel meaning and purpose. And to a varying degree, we also do have the possibility to achieve this in our lives. What it all boils down to is survival. Our bodies need to survive for as long as possible, and our greater collectives too. And on the individual level, it's equally important to feel substance and meaning to be able to survive emotionally. With all of this in mind, we can see how our two waking thirds are very adapted for survival. We deal with what needs to be done to provide nutrition, protection and shelter. And we work together with greater or smaller collectives to create a solid base for survival. Is it then unlikely that the sleeping and thereby dreaming third is also a part of this survival strategy? Of course not. In fact, this could be the most important third of them all. Sleeping isn't merely a passive resting, but allows for the physical organism to very actively repair itself after two-thirds of stressing, wearing and tearing. And consciousness enters another and higher gear to facilitate for other forms of information exchanges and reasonings. This too to facilitate the survival of the totality. To consider dreaming as merely neurological process of order after a day of exposure to fragmented impressions, possibly with some unfulfilled desires thrown into the dream stew, is a presumptuous and demeaning example of how our contemporary times denigrate individuals to utilitarian units inside a soulless collective. However, we're not supposed to be dealing with zeitgeist criticism here, not this time. So let's stay with the function of the dreaming. Just as we communicate with our near and dear ones, work colleagues and others during the two waking thirds in specific and conventional ways, the very same things happen with other consciousnesses during dreaming. The function of the dreaming is communicating, reflecting, reasoning and instructing. The question then arises, with whom, from whom, about what? The most common piece of criticism is that it's not possible to prove that the dream sphere is mainly instructive, since empirical experiments haven't been made to validate these theories? Well, not yet, anyway. On a realistic level, though, this perspective of criticism fails. Only a fraction of all users can in detail explain how the internet works on an empirically acceptable level, 
but that certainly doesn't stop them from communicating with each other. Not seldom with entirely strange or new acquaintances and in new ways. Not seldom with a conscious purpose to learn about something or someone and while at it also learn more about oneself. A fragmented dream recall is a big problem and it's predominantly a cultural one. In many cultures where dreams and dreaming in general are given a higher status, the recall is more detailed, denser and longer. In our own sphere, we often wake up via aggressive cell phone signals and thereby lose out on a soft hypnopompic agitation. If one is aware of it, there's always the possibility to adapt one's waking up a bit. Softer alarm signals and clocks with pulsating light are a few examples. It's interesting to see how this has recently been implemented in transcontinental flights. Instead of brutally just switching the lights on in the cabin when it's time to prepare for landing, soft, pulsating and psychedelic multi-colored lights now bring the passengers back to a waking state. Incidentally or not, these models of airplanes are called dream liners. It is totally possible to approach one's own dreaming. The first step is simply to value the meaning of the dreaming in itself. Not merely as an intellectual or mental perspective or approach, but by integrating the process as being absolutely essential, that is, necessary for living. A dream diary or notebook by your bedside is good, or perhaps a little dictaphone that you could just talk straight into. That is interesting for the sake of dream substance, but also because you consciously leave a hypnopompic comfort to be able to report to yourself. It's a self-discipline method that leads to increased recall on all levels, frequency, intensity, length, etc. Another central aspect of valuing is the interpretation process. We live in the midst of a post-Freudian and sometimes post-Jungian world of interpretation, and many of their theories and models are totally dominant today. Many of them are still useful, but the most important thing is simply that you interpret your own dream. The analyst or therapist hasn't dreamt your dream. You dreamt your dream. If the interpretation isn't mainly yours, to as great an extent as possible, there will be an inherent level of distance and abstraction that complicates deeper understanding. If you're aware of and accept that all dreams are instructive, the process in itself becomes an incentive to work harder. It's not only fun, fascinating and exciting, but also potentially essential when seen in relation to the survival instinct. In this cosmic ultraholism, you, as the dreamer, communicate with an overall and permanent life force or intelligence through your own active filter. 
being a synthesis of concepts like human being, individual, sleeping environment, cerebral and emotional processes, and so on. There are many good reasons why dreams often use symbols or aestheticized seed in these instructive displays. The pioneering intuitions of Freud and the early psychologists were correct. The two waking thirds are based on programmed behavior and a hierarchic structure. It's a simplified way of thinking and a simplified communication that's based on nuanceless causality. Here, only straight messages work, and if one message contradicts another, the, the vaguer or weaker of the two will give way, even if you know on a deeper and more emotionally resonant level that that option was actually the right one. This is why there is another kind of language in the dream sphere. We can extract this level of anotherness to an esoteric sphere of various human exploits in history, not seldom focused on extraordinary inner experiences. Occult science, initiatory rituals and teachings of fraternal organizations, magical societies, individual psychonauts, and so on. Human symbolic worlds have been consciously created or translated from the dream sphere to bring a certain knowledge or tradition onwards in as pure a form as possible. That is, as untainted as possible by vague and causal human language, which also has a tendency to change with time. The hypnopompic state, that is, when you drift out of sleep and into waking, is generally more difficult to control mentally than the hypnagogic, that is, when you drift from the waking state and into sleep. The reason is, of course, that the feeling of pleasant well-being that sleeping means to most of us, and the enormous attraction of the dreams themselves. Another way of increasing both recall and a general contact with the dream sphere is to express it in an artistic form. This doesn't mean that the method can only be used by artists, but that you use methods that are suitable to give form to what you've dreamt and your own interpretation of that. The dream notebook could be seen as the most primitive example, but an interpretative text can lead to more. The same for drawing or painting, the recreation of the dream sequence in images. The reason is, as mentioned before, twofold. You get a better reflection surface for concrete interpretation and you thereby value the process as such. In one's own interpretation of the dream lies also the possibility of changing the perspective. Consider that the dream you've, you have experienced and remembered perhaps wasn't dreamt by you at all, but that it is something that was presented for you from the outside, like an existential gift. To give an outer form or shape to something inner is classical magic. 
to give form to something desired through artistic work, like poetry, drawings, paintings, sculptures, etc., is to awaken life within the desire. That goes for nightmares too, although hopefully the other way around. The expression creates a catharsis of the undesired. The creative externalization of dreams apparently has therapeutic qualities of many kinds. And this has been integrated in some segments or schools of psychology in different forms of art therapy. The question is if it stops there. If it only stays at this phase one, meaning that it's liberating to see what you've dreamt in a new way. I would like to argue that both frequency and intensity in this process increases the dream sphere contact interface in itself. Recall becomes easier, which facilitates a more efficient interpretation work. It also brings an increase of general existential stimulation in the form of fascination and joy which I absolutely ascribe to the literally essential function of dreaming. An analogy. You can eat various kinds of junk food under stressed circumstances, or you can eat consciously good and nutritious food under relaxed circumstances. What you choose will affect life as a whole, not only the elementary system and its work as a purely physiological phenomenon. We often appear in our own dreams. This indicates not only a personal presence in a kind of poetic flow of irrational wishes, but can just as well indicate an instructive process. What you experience in the dream is meant for you and no one else. The identity and recognition of one's own presence is a language which activates receptivity for messages from the dream sphere. Under normal circumstances we awaken with an in dream fragments. Fascinating and attractive for sure, but they fade so quickly in that we often unwillingly approach the waking state. We are quite often so stressed already here that we don't even have the time to treat the frustration concerning the evanescence of the dreams. But do the dreams still linger on somewhere inside us? Are all dreams stored like our sensory impressions in an enormous dream bank? If dreams aren't just loose fragments of memories but, as I argue, very concrete and individualized transmissions from much higher frequency levels, then perhaps it's possible to improve one's reception and simply receive more. The ether is full of an enormous amount of frequencies and messages that our senses cannot register, but they're still there. Radio, television, wireless internet, telecommunications, spy signals, and many other things. In that sphere, it's a question of adapting to the existing technology to be able to receive what is relevant to the communication in question. Our receiving technology when it comes to the dream sphere is the brain.
and it can definitely be trimmed and calibrated to receive and interpret more. Actually, a lot more. As often in life, when it comes to mind-expanding or potentially life-changing experiences, modern individuals have a hard time taking their own experiences seriously enough to allow them to become concrete and meaningful parts of a life in creative flux. In the dream sphere, it becomes doubly problematic. We are raised in a culture in which this sphere is not given a high priority, yet the word itself indicates many ideal forms for us. Dream girl, dream boy, dream team, dream scenario, and so on. And we're all, on very deep levels, endlessly fascinated by the attraction of the dreams, but generally powerless in approaching them. We also live like slaves in the digital dictatorship of entertainment, in which we're swamped by symbols and dreamlike films and images. This is something I perceive as distinctly weakening our own dreaming. It's not unusual that creative people have a good and active relationship to their own dreams, regardless of how concretely they work with them. We shouldn't just mention the strict sleep-based dreaming here, but also things like active imagination, daydreaming, hypnagogic states, hypnopompic states, and also deep forms of meditations. Again, this is not only for or by artists. Many scientists, engineers, philosophers, writers and others who live by thinking in new ways often feel a kinship with the attraction to the abnormal within dreaming. On a general level, though, these people are exceptions rather than rules. But it hasn't always been like that. Even in the West, dreams used to be more integrated. During antiquity, Greek physicians often consulted dreams in their diagnostic and healing work. Plutarch's stories of antique Greek and Roman lives are filled with integrated dreams on religious as well as personal planes. A lot of people probably associate this systematic or prioritized dreaming with so-called primitive cultures, as is the case with magic in general. A big difference between then and now is that dreaming used to be collectively integrated in almost all of the world. Today, we dream alone. Well, at least in our cultural sphere. In Tibetan scholastic Buddhism, advanced dream work is integrated in meditations and other forms of inner work, with basically the same goal as for everything else they strive for, to see through the dream mechanisms and try to leave these and everything else behind in an enlightened state of nirvana. Mark Twain and many other inspired authors have claimed that telepathy is completely normal <coughs> excuse me, and that the dream sphere is that place in consciousness where you can travel freely as you will, even in time. All that's needed is basically that you value the process and that you start working with it.
the engineer Edison was close to addicted to his hypnagogic moments, as he learned early on that his best ideas came while in a hypnagogic state of mind. After having worked in a very high tempo mentally, he usually allowed himself what he called catnaps, short breaks. He sat in his office chair with two steel balls, one in each hand, then drifted off. When he fell asleep properly, the balls fell to the floor and the sound woke him up. Very often he had a new idea clear in his mind at that time. Quite often these eureka moments come after an intense intellectual work process that the person in question then sets free in a dream sphere. Einstein had been thinking about his theory of, of relativity for 10 years and when his epiphanic moment eventually arrived, it arrived after a dream that drifted into a hypnopompic state. Here we can see an analogy to traditional magical thinking in which a work of will culminates in a ritual after which you set the desired effect or result free to find its own manifestation where and when it's suitable. Goethe, Wagner, Brahms, Puccini and hundreds if not thousands of other prominent artists of different kinds have all admitted their debt to either dreaming proper or hypnagogic states of mind. Kekulé, the man who discovered the benzene molecule in 1890, did this in a revealing dream in which a snake-like being moved around in a, to Kekulé, molecularly applicable way. The facts were already inside his rational intellect, but he needed to have that final detail presented to him under irrational circumstances. It's interesting how these key moments are never spelled out, so to speak, but always come in a symbolic form that makes the lock unlock. It seems as if the symbolic world of images is richer and often more efficient than rational clarity. Art history is of course filled with people who've created remarkable things and I think most of you know this sphere better than that of benzene molecules. We have to mention the surrealists of course who not only jumped out of dreams in terms of inspiration but also to a great extent externalized the dreams in their artworks. This may have increased their personal dream contacts but they also helped to undermine the conservative, destructive and post-industrial consciousness of the Western world. The strong and often erotic surreal images and texts, to a great extent inspired by Freud and psychology in general, created a higher level of tolerance of inner spheres and dream languages. A more contemporary example could be David Lynch, whose surrealistic inspiration and that stemming from his own transcendental meditation and his own dreams has contributed to so many artistic masterpieces. When Audrey Horn in Twin Peaks starts dancing at the diner and says, 
isn't this music dreamy? It becomes a little piece of a mosaic of a new use of language. And when something is strange, eerie, irrational and dreamlike, we say today that it's a Twin Peaks moment rather than using a stricter reference to a dream atmosphere. It can indeed be dream-promoting to be exposed to other people's dreams and their creative externalizations of them. You get rid of some negative rationality under controlled circumstances in a cultivated comfort zone. But the effect will be much greater when you actively start working on and with your own dream sphere. Let us now finally toy with the idea that what we do during our two waking thirds is simply to move the biological being onwards. We add nutrition and work for survival and at the same time get really tired. All of this simply to make possible and optimize the most important third of our lives, that of sleeping, of dreaming. Some of us are more or less individuated and we feel a harmony in our lives and work. How can that be? Isn't it possible that it has to do with an optimal placement of individual capacity in a greater totality of a life-affirming movement? Aren't we all actually receiving information about these things in the instructional moments of our dreams? Is the basic problem simply that a weak recall obstructs an increased awareness about our own capacity and our own existential potential? I would absolutely say so. So, summing up, dream recall is possible to extend by an increased valuing of dreams, by immediate notes, interpretations, and artistic externalizations. It's extremely important that the interpretation of the dreams is your own. Consciously prioritized dream work in general brings increased dream response, frequency, strength, resonance. The dream sphere is not only made up of fragments of memories or wishes that the brain as a neurological composite tries to process to recreate order during sleep. Dreams are not exclusively irrational expressions of subconscious desires. The dream sphere is beyond time and space, an outside causal, logical, that is, man-made structures. <clears throat> the dream sphere contains directed individual messages containing information and advice in regard to behavior on individual and collective levels. A simple analogy is ether-based media and wireless internet where you have a sender and a receiver and which requires a specific technology. Thank you very much for uh, listening to this lecture, The Magic of Dreams Made Real. Uh, it was great seeing you again, and I hope that we'll meet again soon in this webinar series. Thank you. Bye. If you enjoyed this lecture, please visit 
carlabrahamson.com for more information about upcoming lectures and webinars. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion by Carl Abrahamson called The Magic of Dreams Made Real. This talk was pulled from his book, A Culture, The Hidden Forces That Drive Culture Forward, published by Inner Traditions. Carl also has a book on Scarlet Imprint called Resonances, and he has his own publishing company, Tripart Books, Films, and Editions. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. If you enjoy this, join Carl and I at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Your support of our work is very appreciated. Thank you. Nothing short of a total gender. Nothing short.